Amen. All right. Well, good morning, Mercy Fellowship. Hope you're well this morning. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Curtis. I serve as an elder in training here at the church, and I do a few other things around the building and run a fellowship group, stuff like that. Uh, honored to be preaching, though, this Sunday. We've been in a sermon series in First Peter, and we're taking a break this Sunday. The reason for that is because I was scheduled to preach this Sunday, and then there was a church in Everett that needed help covering a pulpit. And so I was covering one, uh, the pulpit for them last week, and they were going through the Beatitudes. And so this morning, we're not even going to go through all the Beatitudes. We're going to go through one Beatitude. And it looks weird if it's just unknown. We don't know why we're doing it. And so that's why I thought I'd let you know. We're pausing from First Peter, and we're going to be looking at that. Uh, so let me say this, though, just to kind of prime the pump for all of us. I don't know what you know about the Sermon on the Mount, but this is the Sermon of all sermons. Uh, this is Jesus, who is the head of the church, telling the church how she ought to live and behave and move and have her being. And if you read it, there's something really, I think, magical that happens when you read it. There's a call from Jesus to buy into a different way of living life. There's a call from Jesus for you and I to live differently as God's people than the rest of the world. In fact, I think of John Stott. John Stott, he was an old British theologian and pastor, studied the Bible, taught the Bible for well over half a century, and at, towards the end of his life, he was asked, hey, what still surprises you about the Bible? What still comes to mind and, and sparks you a little bit? And he said the thing that surprises him when he opens the Bible is God's call for Christians to be different. That's the thing that surprises him. I think of A.W. Tozer, he has a famous quote, he has a lot of famous quotes, just so we're clear. But he has the famous quote where he says, a frightened world needs a fearless church. And just so we're clear, church, we're not talking about being a careless church. We're not talking about being um, not only careless, uh, but reckless. No, we're talking about being fearless. And we're being fearless not because of any strength we have in and of ourselves, but because we believe and trust in a good and sovereign God. That's why we can be fearless. And so my prayer for us, church, is that we'd be fearless in our day to all that God has called us to do and be. And if there was ever a time that the world needed bold Christians, I believe it is now. And just so we're clear, it's not about being more conservative. It's not about being more liberal. It's not even about being somewhere in the center. Really what it's about is about being otherworldly. Uh, another way to say that is countercultural. John Piper, he's got this, fam uh, this quote that comes in line with what we're talking about. He says, the world does not need cool Christians who are culturally saturated. Rather, it needs exiles with the scent of heaven on them. And so church, that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about being other than the world. If you got a Bible, Matthew chapter five is where we're going to be, looking at verse nine. If you don't, it'll, it'll be on the screen so you don't have to, have to worry about that. Uh, but we gotta look at some context. We gotta do some deep diving into the background of why Matthew wrote this gospel. And I said this before last time I preached, and I will continue to say it when I preach out of the gospels, but I think this is a reality. We in the church think so poorly of the gospels when all we do is think of them as history, no more, no less. And it is true, they are history, but they're far more than just history. 
Matthew's gospel, it's a, it's a piece of art. It is a, a crafted, tailor-made work. Matthew, he wrote his letter that, with a specific message in a specific time in a specific place. These are crafted letters. These are composed pieces of art. And he's writing to a church that's primarily Jewish. Not 100% Jewish, but primarily Jewish. And he's writing to them to let them know that this Jesus, who put on bone and flesh, who walked around on this earth, is in fact the long-awaited Savior of the world. This is what all the Old Testament prophets had longed for and looked for. It has now come. It has now been found. That's why when you have the church fathers and they have all the New Testament books, they put Matthew at the front of all the New Testament books. This is really the fulfillment of all the Old Testament had spoken of. So Matthew has many themes that run through his book, but one of the themes in line with the Sermon on the Mount that's just so genius is this. He'll give the story of Jesus in line, in correlation with the life of Moses. And you say, well, how so? Well, if you grew up in church, you probably know the story of Moses. Uh, for the rest of you heathens that didn't grow up in church, just let me tell you really quickly. Uh, Moses, he is God's appointed man for the task of freeing Israel from slavery, and he does just that. After a series of plagues that take place, Pharaoh allows the people of Israel to be freed from Egypt, and that's what happens. They go out of Egypt, and they come across then the waters of the Red Sea. At the waters of the Red Sea, the waters are parted open by God, and Israel can walk on dry ground to the other side. And as Israel's being chased by the armies of Egypt to bring them back into slavery, God encloses the waters over them. Then at that point, Israel is now a freed people, finally. They no longer have an enemy that's trying to enslave them. But they're not entirely free yet. They're in the wilderness for 40 years in a season of testing and tempting. And after that time of being in the wilderness, then they get to Mount Sinai. And this is the place where Moses receives the law of God. Now, this is the place where Moses receives the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions. And so you see the sequence, though, that's taking place. It's Egypt, it's water, it's wilderness, and it's mountain. These four landscapes, if you will. And these four landscapes are paralleled in Matthew's Gospel. Stick with me on this. When Jesus is born, him and his family, they flee to Egypt for safety from King Herod. Once King Herod has passed and Jesus is a bit older, him and his family, they come out of Egypt back home to Israel. And when Jesus is older, he's baptized in the waters by his cousin John the Baptist. And after that, then, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And after then being in the wilderness, he goes then and preaches Matthew 5 through 7, the sermon on the mount. You see that sequence once again of Egypt, water, wilderness, mountain? You might look at that and say, wow, Curtis, that's really impressive. That's a cool hat trick. Why is that important, though? Church, it's so important. It's so important. Hear me on this. To the Jews, who Matthew's addressing, Moses is their guy. All right? It's not a far stretch to say that Moses is the one who redeemed them. Moses, he's the mediator between God and man. He's the one who received the law of God. Moses is Israel's guy. In fact, you read in the book of Acts, I think it's the Apostle Paul that says, he says, in the synagogue, every Sabbath, Moses is proclaimed. 
So from the time you're a young Jewish boy or girl to the time you're an old Jewish man or woman, you're hearing about how great Moses is, how wonderful Moses is, how God used Moses in mighty ways. And Matthew comes along to a primarily Jewish audience and says, yeah, Moses is your guy, but Jesus is greater than him. But Jesus is greater than him. And you say, well, how so? Well, here's how. It's not enough, church, to simply be freed from physical slavery. I, I know it's a big statement. Let me just say this. I cannot think of anything more Christ-like someone could do with their life than freeing people from physical slavery, okay? I'm not against that. What's being communicated, though, here, I believe, is this. There is a slavery that is deeper still than just the surface level. There is a slavery in the hearts and minds of people due to sin. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, he says, we're enslaved to a fear of death. This is due to our depravity. And someone, somewhere, some way, somehow, has to come and free us from this slavery, has to come and redeem us. And that's exactly what Jesus does. So Jesus, he is a better redeemer than that of Moses. But beyond that too, church, we have, can continue on with this. Jesus has a greater word than that of Moses. This is really applicable to us, especially in the last few years that we've been in, right? With being in lockdown and just all the tension that's been going on in the world, right? We've surrounded ourselves with our phones and our laptops and our TVs, and we're, we're in these echo chambers where we feast upon the words that we have around us. And there's a cost to that. There's a cost to what takes place feasting on these words that we do, and I don't think it's a good cost. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he says this. He says, you deny a man food and he'll gobble poison. And I think we're all guilty of gobbling poison these last few years. And what I want to do is I want to call us back to feasting upon this, feasting upon God's word. Uh, Church, for yourself, aren't you exhausted Aren't you tired? Aren't you burdened? There might be many reasons why that is, but one of them might be that you're malnourished in God's word. And what I want to do is I want to call you to feast upon this. This is the food for the believer. This is what God has given for us to feast upon. And as we feast on it, may we find ourselves strengthened by it and our peace abounding, even in such times as these. The parallels, though, they continue on, right? Jesus, he is a greater Moses. He has a greater word than Moses. He's a greater redeemer than that of Moses. Now those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus, though, they are now the new people of God. That's exactly what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking to his disciples. And this is so crucial that we get this, right? It's so crucial, though, that we understand our identity in Christ precedes our action. Because what will happen? Well, what will happen is Jesus is going to tell us how we ought to live. And you can look at that and go ahead and say, okay, well, this is how I ought to live. This is what I need to do to be a Christian. And that's not the case. These are already people that follow Jesus, that know Jesus, that love Jesus, that Jesus is saying, hey, if you're going to be a part of my kingdom, if you're going to be a citizen of my kingdom, this is how you live. Martin Luther, he helps us with this distinction. He says, we are saved by faith alone but the faith that saves is never alone. Well, what's he saying there? Well, he's saying this, you're saved in Jesus by faith alone. There's nothing you can do to add to that, nothing at all. When Jesus declares on the cross, it is finished, we believe he meant it, okay? 
On the other side, though, of faith in Jesus, hopefully faith is not by itself. Hopefully there's some fruit that starts to hang off of your life. Hopefully there's some characteristic changes that take place from someone who was once dead in sin to now someone who's alive in Christ. Church, it's been said before, let me say it again, we change our behavior not to earn the favor of God, but rather because of what He has done by saving us. And I want to be careful, too, with saying that, right? Especially if you've grown up in church or you've grown up in the Protestant church, you've heard that so many times, so much so to where it becomes a soundboard. Yeah, Curtis, I know nothing I can do to lose God's favor. Yeah, I understand that. And that's true, and that's good, but let's make no mistake about it. How you act matters greatly to God. It matters greatly. In fact, if it didn't, God wouldn't have anything to say about it, but he does. And the first section of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, is just that. It's a list of the characteristics and the qualities of a Christian. He starts off with saying this. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And our verse for today, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Have you ever thought about this, what peace is? I'll tell you what, I've only been preaching regularly for a few years now, but what I've discovered is this. When it comes to words that are really common, like peace or love or joy or hope in our language, I've found this. In one sense, it seems so obvious what it is that we don't need to define it. But when I dig deeper into it, the reality is, I think culturally, at best, we partially understand what these words mean, specifically when it comes to peace. Right? Because when you think of peace, what comes to your mind? What comes to your mind? Perhaps Buddha statue, a peace symbol, some activities like yoga, some sort of scenery like a sunset or a sunrise. Uh, someone at church last week yelled out hippies. I think that probably applies as well. All right. What do you think of? Perhaps some of you think of silence as peace, although for those of you who are married, you know that silence is not always synonymous with peace. All right. <laughs> Culturally, when we talk about peace, we simply mean the absence of conflict. And that's good, and that's right. We don't want conflict, right? But what takes the place of conflict once it's gone? It's, it's a half-truth. And so the idea, biblically, of what peace is, is this. Yeah, it is the absence of conflict, but what takes its place is the effort to make something complete or whole. Other ways of, of uh, defining it are this making order out of chaos, taking that which is broken and repairing it, taking that which is stolen and returning it and making it whole. In fact, you think of something like John 5 for you King James Version saints here, okay? John 5, man at the pool of Bethesda, he's completely crippled for 30 plus years. Jesus heals him, and rather than using the word heal, it says Jesus is the one who made me whole. And what's that communicating? It's communicating peace. It's communicating shalom. That's what it's saying. Now, before we move forward with just saying, okay, well, now this is what peace is. Let's go ahead and apply it. I think we need to pump the brakes a little bit and talk about why we need peace. And you might say, oh, well, it's obvious, Curtis, we need peace. Come on. 
everything we've been through, all the tension and turmoil we've gone through? I don't think it is. We live in a world church where a lot of people don't believe in God, right? I mean, that's an obvious statement. I didn't even have to say it. We live in a world where a lot of people don't believe in God, and so they would go ahead and say, hey, peace is a subjective thing at that point. There's nothing objectively grounding you in the idea that you need peace. And so I think where we should push back, though, is this. There is something inside all of humanity that longs for and desires peace. There's something inside all of humanity that longs for wholeness and shalom to take place. And why is that? Well, we have to go where the Bible goes. The Bible, it starts in Genesis. And it starts with God creating everything good, creating our first parents, Adam and Eve, providing for their joy and flourishing, and giving them the task of not only working the ground, but keeping the ground and growing in number. This is literally discipleship is what's taking place. God creates everything good. This is a perfect place of shalom and peace, and our first parents, they sinned. They chose not to obey God, but to obey themselves. And ever since that point, church, all of humanity has been in a constant pursuit of trying to get back to that reference point of the Garden of Eden, trying to get back to that place of shalom, trying to get back to that place of peace. On one extreme, you have people who will literally mutilate their flesh for the purpose of trying to produce peace in their life. On the other side, you have people who believe essential oils work and that those will produce peace. You know, I, th I think that you can only sniff lavender so much before it'll produce peace in your life. So we're in need of peace. So this morning, church, where do you look for peace? Where do you look for peace? I'll give two categories of people, and we'll go ahead and dissect those. Uh, these categories of people, there's millions of people that identify with each of these groups. So they're still very much so a real and present thing for us. Uh, the first group is Buddhists. Buddhists, they don't believe in God. They believe that all of life is suffering. And the reason for suffering is because they have desires. And so, how do you get rid of suffering? Well, you get rid of desire. And once you get rid of desire, then you can exhale. <sighs> you have now found peace. And just so we're clear, church, like I already said, there's millions of people that prescribe to this. In fact, just in Woodenville, there is a Buddhist temple there. And there's people that have devoted their entire lives to finding peace that way. So it's still very much so a real thing. A question I think we should uh, pose, though, is this. Do you desire to get rid of desire? It doesn't seem to be something that we want to talk about, but save it for another time. Uh, the next one, though, is hedonism. So if Buddhists want to get rid of all desire, then hedonists want to pursue all desires. They want to maximize their pleasures. And that, by maximizing their pleasures, they would get rid of suffering. And once they've fulfilled everything, they can exhale they now have peace. So what's the reported testimony of hedonists, though? It doesn't work. It's like drinking salt water, thinking that that'll quench your thirst, and it doesn't work, so you drink more salt water, and it doesn't work, so you drink more salt water, and it's this never-ending cycle. Now, church, allow me just to kind of stir things up a little bit, okay? If I was to put my finger on it as to where most of us would land, I would say most of us primarily would land in the hedonist camp. Yeah, we may not identify as them, but due to where we live and the luxuries that we have, there's very few things that we desire that we don't actually get. I think there's a lot of things that we can just get by, uh, by the snap of a finger, right? Let me ask you this. Did that truck or car that you bought, did it satisfy you? 
When you got that new house, did it satisfy? Just got a new house in November, it didn't satisfy, just so you know. When you had those kids, did they satisfy? When those grandkids came into your life, did it satisfy you? When you hit that certain number in the bank account, did it satisfy you? Some of you might say, I haven't hit that number yet, Curtis. I'll let you know when I get there. Um, I'd put my money on it. That probably won't satisfy. Here's the reality, uh, church. Uh, the, The truth is this. None of those things are bad things. They're all good things. They're all right things. They're all things you need in your life. But they become bad things, and they become corrosive in your life when these are the things that produce your peace and your ultimate satisfaction. That's when they become an issue. Furthermore, the truth is this as well as far as hedonists and Buddhists go. Neither of them are entirely wrong. If you and me had some things that we desire, not only would they destroy us, but they would destroy all of the people that we love around us. And yet, there are some things we desire that are okay, that are good. And so how do we deal with that tension? Well, there's a verse in the Psalms that says this, "'Delight yourself in the Lord.'" and he will give you the desires of your heart. It's often a very butchered verse that just people say uh, so that God will give them stuff. Uh, What's it saying, though? It's saying this. It's saying when you desire God above all else, when God becomes the thing your ultimate pleasure is found in, when he is the one that brings you peace, then, at that point, will God give you the desires of your heart, and he'll give you such things because your desires are going to fall in line with God's desires. Yeah, not perfectly, but as the sanctification process works in the Christian life of making you more and more like Jesus as time goes on, by God's grace, church, your desires are going to fall more in line with God's desires. And praise God for that. John Piper, he's got a famous quote, his most famous quote, where he says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And that's exactly it right there. So where do you look for peace, church? Where do you look for peace? Do you starve yourself of things to give you peace? Do you chase after things to give you peace? When you look for peace, what's your process and have you found it? Now, here's a real fear of mine. A fear of mine is this. We can and do, at times, pursue peace wrongly. And mostly we pursue peace wrongly at the cost of truth and righteousness. And why is that? Well, because we don't like conflict, right? I don't like conflict. I know you don't like conflict. But sometimes conflict is good for the pursuit of truth and the pursuit of righteousness and the pursuit of peace. It makes me think in the Old Testament, it makes me think of the kings and the prophets of old. Uh, The king's job in the Old Testament was to be someone who would have the task of making the rule and reign of the city be one of peace. You think of Solomon, this is David's son, his name in Hebrew is Shalomo, and it means son of peace. That should tell you right there what his job was. And yet what would happen time and time again, if you read the Old Testament, is that these kings, rather than worshiping the one true God, they would fall and worship other gods. They'd worship gods that have eyes but can't see. They would worship gods that have ears but can't hear. And because of this then, the judgment of God was coming against these nations. These other nations would come and they are getting ready to decimate the, the nation of Israel. And what would happen then is the false prophets would come and they would go into the marketplace And they would say, thus says the Lord, peace, peace. And there's no peace coming. You want to make it really real, church. It's like someone going into Ukraine in the streets there and saying, peace, peace. 
It's obvious that there's no peace coming. Rightfully, God judges them. He condemns them. And the reality for them and the reality for you and for me is this. When we sacrifice truth for peace, in the end, we don't have either of them. In the end, we lose both. So let's get some good news, though, okay? What's the good news of the gospel? Well, the good news of the gospel is this. Jesus is, in fact, our peace. You know, I don't need to go smoke something. I don't need to go drink something. I don't need to go somewhere. I don't need to see a sunset or a sunrise. I don't need to stretch in funny positions for the product of peace. Uh, The reality is, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, he has come and he has found us. That's the good news. And you say, well, what confidence is there that Jesus is, in fact, our peace? Uh, the, The confidence is this. He says to you and to me, he says, my peace I give you. My peace I leave with you. I don't give peace as the world gives peace. So don't let your hearts be troubled and don't let them be afraid. And something really amazing happens when you become a Christian. When you start to follow Jesus and you've been rescued from the slavery of sin and death, Jesus then invites you to be on the rescue team with him. And as Jesus is the Prince of Peace and as Jesus is our peace, he then calls you and I to be peacemakers in our day. So how do we make peace? Well, I want us to think of peace like this. I want us to think of peace as a road we travel on, not a destination we arrive at, right? I don't want us to do just a few good things in our neighborhoods, a few good things in our community, and say, that's it, we have arrived, we are now peacemakers. And then we get Pastor Chris to sign a couple certificates and hand them out by the door, saying that we're all peacemakers, okay? I don't think that's ideal. I don't think that's where we should aim for. Church, we live in a broken world, obvious. And because of that, then, we will always be in the business of making peace. So here's a few things. It's not a long list, not an exhaustive list, but here's a few things I think what peacemaking calls for. The first is this. Peacemaking calls for reconciliation. You look at the verse on the screen, Colossians 1, 19 through 20. I read a little bit of it this morning in our call to worship. Paul says, For in him, that is Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Any of you have siblings? Any of you grow up fighting with your siblings? Any of you grow up and you just, everything was perfect? No one fought, everything was fine, right? No, of course not, right? You fought with your siblings constantly, right? And you were always in the process of being reconciled with your siblings, especially when you had a parent step in and try to be the mediator between you two. And reconciliation is just that, church. It's when two parties have animosity between each other, and there's a restoration of the relationship and peace between the two. And church, this goes back to how well we understand the gospel, How well do we understand that we have been reconciled to God, as Paul just points out in Colossians, right? Do you understand that due to your sin, due to your rebellion, you were an enemy of God at one point? Church, it's not so much that God was angry with you in as much as it was that you didn't want God prior to him saving you. You didn't want someone telling you how to live. You didn't want someone telling you how you ought to orient your life. And yet, God in his great mercy reached out to you. In tender kindness and mercy, he sought to reconcile with you. 
And so, church, I think it's vital that we understand this point if it's not obvious already. The only way that we have peace in this world is when we have first have peace with God, is when we've been reconciled to Him. A question I want you to consider, church, this morning, I want you to consider it deeply, and I want you to think about it. Who comes to mind when you think of reconciling? I'm not in the business, church, of coming up here and just talking about theoretical stuff. I want this to be applicable. I want this to actually have a change in your life and a change in mine. Who comes to mind when you think of reconciling? Now, I think there's obvious instances where reconciliation is not possible, just so we're clear. These would be instances of abuse or one party does not want reconciliation. And what do you do with such instances as that? The Apostle Paul, he gives us wisdom in this area where he says this, Romans 12, verse 18, he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I love the wisdom of that verse, because what's he saying? He's essentially saying, you focus on you. You can't change someone else's position or disposition. If peace is possible on your part, pursue it, but you can't change someone else. Now, church, I fear this, though. I fear that as I say that, I give some of you an escape to not pursue reconciliation, to not pursue peace. And I've said it to you before. Last time when I preached in summer, I brought up this, but I'll bring it up again because it's so important and vital, I think, for what we're talking about. The story of Corrie Ten Boom. Corrie Ten Boom, her and her family, they hid uh, Jews from the Nazis during World War II. The story is that that uh, Corey and her sister Betsy eventually got captured and were taken to a concentration camp. Her best friend and sister Betsy dies in that concentration camp. Eventually they're liberated. Uh, Corey goes on to have a prolific career as a writer and speaker in Christian circles. And one of the guards from that concentration camp comes up to her, a new Christian, and he extends a hand and he said, would you forgive me? Church, I want you to put yourself in Corey's shoes there for a moment. Someone who has done so much pain, so much harm, so much dehumanizing that you've seen and witnessed, and he comes now as a new Christian, and he's reaching a hand out saying, would you forgive me? What do you say? I want you to hear what Corey says. She says this, I stood there with coldness clutching at my heart, but I know that the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. I prayed, Jesus, help me. Woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one that was stretched out to me, and I experienced an incredible thing. The current, it started in my shoulder, and it raced down into my arms, and it sprang into our clutched hands. Then this warm reconciliation seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all of my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard, the former prisoner. I have never known the love of God so intensely as I did in that moment. Listen, church, to forgive is to set the prisoner free and discover the prisoner was you. Church, peacemaking calls for reconciliation. And I understand, too, even from that quote I just read to you, that peacemaking is not easy. In fact, my second point for us today is this, peacemaking requires sacrifice. You think of what we just read in Colossians, right? It talks about Jesus, and Jesus made peace possible by the shedding of his blood. There is a cost to peacemaking. 
right? And this cost takes place when there's two parties that are against each other and someone has, has robbed or hurt someone. And often the only way that reconciliation is possible is when someone absorbs the wrong that's been done in the relationship. You think of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He has a long section there about reconciliation. And he talks about, hey, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And if the new has come, you've now been invited into the ministry and mission of reconciliation in this world. He talks about what it looks like in depth, but he ends his whole section of reconciliation with the why. Why should I reconcile? In 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, Hey, remember Jesus. He who knew no sin became your sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. What did Jesus do for you? He absorbed your sin. That's what he did. You know, a real example of this is uh, the church that Ruth and I met at in Bothell. There was an older guy who had a troubled past. He, he had been divorced and gotten into addiction and, and pretty, pretty bad stuff. And anyways, the story was that he ended up finding a wife on the other side of the country. And so he's getting ready to sell all of his possessions and stuff, and he had a fairly nice truck. And so he sold his truck to one of the couples at our church, and he, they gave him money, and they saw him every Sunday because he was faithful and showing up at church every Sunday. Anyways, they said, yeah, here's the money. And he's like, yeah, no worries. I'll get it detailed and clean for you. No big deal. And anyways, the long story short is that he didn't sell them the truck. He took their money, and then he sold his truck to someone else. So he doubled down on the profit he made and then fled to the other side of the country. Long story short, he ends up getting fish hooked on the other side of the country. He comes back. I don't know what possessed him, but he came back to our church And he came up to that couple that he had wronged, and he put a hand out, and he said, I'm so sorry, would you forgive me? You know what that couple did? They forgave him. But it's not only church that they forgave him, though. They absorbed the loss of thousands and thousands of dollars in order for reconciliation to be possible. You think about it. How easy would it have been for them to say, I'm not reconciling until you pay me back. We're not right until you make up the loss. Oh, but church, that's not what Christ did for you. It's not what Christ did for you. It's not what Christ has done for me. Absorbing the wrongs done to us, church, it allows us to not pass that pain onto anyone else. In some sense, the buck stops with you and I once we have absorbed that loss. You know, beyond just some immediate examples, I think of examples of other churches in hard places in the world Uh, They are absorbing pain and loss and heartache for the purpose of of preaching this gospel of peace. You know, you think of it in Afghanistan, for an example. Back in September, when just everything went south there, there was an article put out by the Gospel Coalition, and they were talking about it. And and the pastor and the, the people that were there, they were struggling with, how can a good and sovereign God allow such things to take place? If God really makes all things work together for the good of those that are called according to his purposes, how is this happening? And unknown to the pastor, the the worship guy, he chose the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, by Martin Luther. And he writes this, he said, Our song leader chose the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And as we sang the final verse, an Afghan brother came and whispered in my ear, Ashraf Ghani, Afghanistan's president, just resigned. The Taliban, they are now in control. And we sang, he said, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, 
The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. All for peace, church. I think of even in Ukraine, what's going on right there right now. Another article from the Gospel Coalition. Uh, Pastor, I'm going to butcher his name, so forgive me. His name is Vasil Ostray, and he says this. My wife and I, along with our four daughters, we have decided to remain in our city near Kiev. We want to serve the people here along with the Urban Bible Church, where I joined the pastoral team in 2016. In anticipation of coming disasters, we've brought a supply of food and medicine and fuel so that if necessary, we will be able to help those in need rather than burden them. And he asks this question to all of us. How should the church respond when there is a growing threat of war, when there is constant fear in society? I'm convinced, he says, that if the church is not relevant in times of crisis, then it is not relevant in times of peace. I'm trying to paint a picture for you. I'm trying to show you this, church, that, that in times of turmoil, in times of pain, in times of heartache, the church is made for such moments as this. It is in our DNA to be peacemakers, to be reconcilers. And why is that? Well, it's because our forerunner, Jesus, did exactly that for you and for me. Peacemaking often comes price of sacrifice. I think of the, even the Apostle Paul. He talks about the apostles, and he says, hey, we are all sheep that are led to the slaughter. We're the refuse of all things. Uh, this is how peace is made. Third point for us today, church, and the final point, peacemaking is more than just good intentions, right? If it wasn't obvious yet, peacemaking requires work, how grateful are you this morning, church, that your Bible doesn't say, for God so loved the world that he thought well of you. For God so loved the world that he intended to save you. Now, our God is a God of action. Our God is a God of movement. For God so loved the world that he gave. And so just so we're clear, good intentions are hardly good. Good intentions, they've never saved anyone. Good intentions, they've never produced peace anywhere in this world. It needs to be understood that peacemaking is more than just a feeling. It is a call and imitation of our Lord Jesus. And so what's the result of being a peacemaker, though, right? What's the result of this? Well, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. And why are you blessed if you're a peacemaker? You're blessed because you are sons of God, he says. And what does that mean? It means you have the family look. You got the family resemblance on you, being a peacemaker. Uh, mo mo a lot of you guys know this. Uh, Ruth is one of nine siblings, my wife, one of nine. She's got a big family. Her maiden name's Wason. And what happens is this. When we go places like Bellevue or Seattle or Woodenville, Leavenworth, wherever we might be, quite often it happens where people will come up and they'll say, hey, I know your brother. Hey, I, I, I know your family. Hey, you're a Wason. It happens like all the time. It's quite ridiculous. <laughs> Let me tell you this, church. When you're a peacemaker, you have the family look. People say, oh yeah, I know that's your God. I, you look like your father. You've got the same attitude as your Savior, Jesus. Now, you think of the stories that are on the news, right? Of Whether it's a, a story of a family or, or a loved one that has been murdered, the family often shows up or the friends show up and they say publicly, I forgive you. And I'll tell you what, I never look at that and I say, oh, there's a group of atheists forgiving, forgiving that person again. 
There's a group of Buddhists forgiving that person again. No, you, you see that and you say, yeah, that's a group of people who know Jesus forgiving someone. So what's the conclusion, church? Where does peacemaking end? Well, the prophet Isaiah, he says this. He says, of the increase of Jesus' government and of peace, there will be no end. In one way, we can go ahead and say there's an endless amount of peace to be found with Jesus. But on top of that, too, there's also work to be done in producing this peace. But James, the brother of Jesus, I think he really hits the nail on the head here with saying this. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What's he saying? Well, what's righteousness? Righteousness is a right relationship with God. And as these gospel seeds are sown in peace, what's taking place? A revival's taking place. All peacemaking church is aiming at is leading people to trust in Jesus as Lord over all who saves us from the slavery of our sin and our death. So this morning, church, do you trust in Jesus? Do you trust in the Prince of Peace who's rescued you, who saved you, who's, who set you free from your sin and death? I already said it, but allow me to say it again, right? When Jesus rescues you, he invites you onto the rescue team of being a peacemaker. And so, church, I want to call us to make some commitments this morning. I want to call you to be the best Christian you can possibly be in your day. And you say, well, Curtis, that sounds pretty legalistic. Okay, well, what? You want to be the worst Christian in your day? <laughs> you want to be a mediocre Christian? Let's commit, church, to being the best Christians we can be in our day. Uh, we need church, the world needs God-fearing, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing, sermon-on-the-mount-pursuing Christians. That's what the world needs. And yeah, maybe year one and year two, things don't really change the way that we like. Maybe it's not as fast as we would have hoped. But church, as we are diligent, as we are faithful in producing peace in our day, may by God's grace a harvest of righteousness take place. Hey, you think of the old hymn writer, he says, wonder anew what the Almighty can do. Just dream about what God might do in our day as we follow him. Let's pray.